0: Right, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter six, and uh, we're titled the sermon this morning. You are blessed when you suffer. It doesn't sound like a very fun title, does it? I'm kind of suffering right now. Okay, got a little hot last time. <laughs> Expecting better things this this service even. When you think about suffering, suffering doesn't sound all that neat. It doesn't sound like a blessing. As a matter of fact, it sounds like something you'd rather just avoid altogether. Before the days of anesthesia, surgery was just done on people who were awake. And they had to suffer. Some were made to drink alcohol and get drunk. Others were given narcotics like opium. Some were distracted with stinging nettles stinging nettles would be rubbed all over their body to make it so the surgery wouldn't hurt another approach was to take somebody and knock them unconscious just imagine going in for surgery you're laying down there okay we're putting you out and out comes the big wooden mallet they hit you in the jaw, but not enough hold still we'll hit you harder Try not to crush your face, but yet knock you out until we've done. People were strapped down while the scalpel and saw cut through tissue and bone. And it just caused unimaginable gruesome pain. One doctor at that time wrote that surgery was worse than the Spanish Inquisition. And when women gave birth, they couldn't escape the curse. They had pain in childbirth. It doesn't matter how bad the labor was, they had to deal with it all. If you had a headache or a migraine, you just suffered until it went away. When somebody broke a bone and it had to be reset, you just felt every bit of it as they reset it. You just stood there and just bucked up. If you had cancer or some other painful disease, you know, most diseases are painful, You either suffered until you got better or died. And that's just how it was. Well, one Christian physician didn't like this. His name was Sir James Young Simpson. He was a young Scottish physician who lived from 1811 to 1870. And it was Simpson's ambition to find a way to put patients to sleep during surgery so they didn't have to undergo the spanish inquisition on monday night simpson and some other physician friends would gather together at his home and experiment on each other inhaling fumes of different crystals powders and chemicals cooked over a burner one day a one of the physicians had found some unique crystals that they had never tried before called chloroform. And when the doctor sniffed the fumes of burning chloroform, they fell to the floor unconscious. And Simpson had finally discovered how to relieve pain during surgery, but that wasn't the end of it. Because he had this group that was in opposition to him. And guess what group that was? Christians. Fellow believers who claimed that pain was a God-ordained part of life and that to try to bypass pain was to act immorally in an attempt to achieve heaven on earth by worldly means. Well, Sir James decided to prove him wrong. So he thought, I'm going to read through the Bible, and I'm going to find every place I can that will show that relieving pain and surgery is a good thing. And he only had to read one and a half chapters of the Bible when he came to Genesis 2.21, which says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. (laughs) And he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in that place. Then he wrote an article based on that showing that anesthetics and surgery was both right and humane and even followed the God-ordained pattern. Anesthesia was then accepted, and other pain-relieving medications invented, and since then, all sorts of pain and unimaginable agony have been diverted and covered up by medicine. You know, it wasn't until 1887 that a man named Bear developed aspirin. Think about that. Since that day, people have learned that, you know, when you're hurt, you just take any one number of pain relievers. Today, people consume some 15 billion aspirin tablets a year. Go to any grocery store, any pharmacy, and what do you see? Aisles and aisles of remedies and concoctions and medicines and whatever to fit every sort of pain and soreness and discomfort imaginable. Our society has become obsessed with escaping pain. No one wants to hurt either mentally or physically. It is considered wrong to suffer in any way. Even criminals, even criminals who get the death sentence are killed in a painless way. It's against the law to cause an animal to suffer. It's wrong to feel guilty. It's wrong to feel sad. It's wrong to feel depressed. It's wrong to be unhappy in any way. This is America. I mean, we have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And believe me, we're pursuing it hard pharmaceutical companies, homopathic remedies, chiropractic, hypnotic, and acupuncture techniques like therapy, um, group therapy, and a host of other things have all come into existence for the single purpose of escaping pain. One of the major causes of drugs and alcohol abuse today are because people are trying to find a way to escape pain to escape the stresses of life and trials of life, and they just don't want to cope because it's just too hard, and so they check out with drugs and alcohol. There seems to be only one exception to where pain is tolerable, and that is it's still legal to tear a baby apart in its mother's womb or burn it with a salt solution to death. Other than that, you can't even hurt an animal. You can't even hurt an animal. If you don't like drugs, though, if you don't like alcohol, if you don't like the hangovers or hypnosis or acupuncture or homopathic, you know, herbal remedies, there's another way to escape the pain, misery, and trials of life, and that is entertainment. Entertainment. You know, all you gotta do is just veg out in front of the TV, go to a play, go to a movie, go to a show, go to some sort of production, sit down with a good fiction book, and you just forget all of your trials, and you're just, you're fine. And life is hard, and it's painful, and it is stressful. And it's difficult coping with reality, and entertainment is just one of those mental diversions which helps you to forget the trials of this world, and that's why it is so popular today. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying entertainment is wrong, necessarily. I'm not saying a good fiction book or many medicines are wrong. I think they're great. But don't be fooled as a Christian. The goal of the Christian's life is not to be pain-free. That is not the ultimate goal of life, to have pleasurable sensations or to have no sensations at all. Sometimes it's good to feel pain. Sometimes pain is a blessing from God. Now, why do I tell you all this? Because we're going to get into the Sermon on the Mount this morning. And Jesus has got this huge crowd of people, and I'm telling you, the first words out of his mouth are shockers. And you can sum them all up with, you need to suffer. It's good. When you compare Luke's account with Matthew's account of the same sermon, you will discover that some things are similar and some things are different. And This always bothers new students of the Bible. You get a new student of the Bible, and they're studying, and they're comparing Gospels, and Uh Uh-oh, how come they're different? And they think, well, if there are parallel accounts, they should be parallel. They should be identical. But what you need to realize is the reason there are four different gospels is God wanted four different perspectives. And so each Gospel writer writes with a different theme and a different purpose in mind. And so as they are describing for us the life of Jesus, they're taking bits and pieces from what will serve their theme and purpose. Together, we get a fuller picture because we have four men writing from four different perspectives. And so you can expect when there are parallel accounts to have some things different, some things the same. But never a contradiction. Now, when you look at Luke chapter 6, if you look in verse 17, you'll notice that the text says Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. And some of your Bibles may even have a little caption there called the Sermon on the Plain. The problem is, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew's version says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to a mountain. Some said, aha, it's got to be a different account because these do not match up. The problem is when you look at them and you look at the whole, both Matthew, there's so many similarities. really, this is the same thing. Well, how do you deal with this sermon on the plain or sermon on the Mount? You know, one's lumpy, one's smooth. Well, obviously Jesus didn't say, Hey, come on up to the hill here and sit on a 45 degree slope. He took them up on the hill, found a level place, and they all sat down. As a matter of fact, if you go to Jerusalem today, they'll show you a place where they think the Sermon on the Mount came and everybody wasn't sitting on a slope, you know, rolling down the hill. It's a hill with a level place. And so it is the Sermon on the Plain that's on the Mount. So in case you notice that, that's the answer to that. And most likely, Jesus' sermon was much longer. You know, he he didn't preach for seven minutes. He probably preached for an hour, two, maybe three. And then the gospel writers, they take different pieces and they put them in their gospel. Now, we're going to be looking at what are called beatitudes this morning. And a beatitude is, you know... Some people tend to think of it as an attitude that we should be. Okay, this is be attitude. Biblically, a beatitude is a pronouncement or a state of blessing that is bestowed upon a person by God. That's what biblically a beatitude is. Matthew gives us eight beatitudes, Luke only four. But while Luke leaves off four, Luke includes four woes, that Matthew doesn't include. So Luke kind of gives us the balance treatment. He says, here's four Beatitudes that will bring God's blessing. Here are four woes that bring God's cursing. We'll look at the cursings next week. So if you have your Bible, look at Luke chapter 6, verse 20, and follow along as I read through verse 22. Now, as I do this, I want you to remember that all these people are following Jesus. There's disciples, there's people from Tyre and Sidon, and all over the place from Jerusalem. They've all come and they brought their sick. Remember, we learned last week, they brought sick people, demon-possessed people, withered hands, every sort of ailment and disease, and Jesus was healing them all. So Jesus was all about healing physical pain. Keep that in mind. He's not saying, buck up, I'm not healing you. He healed all of them according to the previous text. Now, turning his gaze, verse 20 says, toward his disciples, he began saying, Then to say, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn you. Scorn your name is evil for the sake of the son of man. Be glad in that day. Leap for joy for behold your reward in heaven. Reward is great in heaven for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. Now, from this portion of Luke, you're going to learn about four different kinds of suffering that are an indication and lead to God's blessing. And you need to know this, that these certain kinds of suffering are good to experience. They're good kinds of suffering, and you should not attempt, when they come into your life, to escape them to drown them out with drugs or alcohol or blight therapy or entertainment. Now, before we look at the Beatitudes, we need to just talk about a couple other things. We need to realize that when Jesus is talking to this group of people, this is really trying to them. They're all there to get healed. They're all there to hear some good teaching, maybe to have some miraculous bread And Jesus then says, I want to give you the four spiritual laws. Law one, God wants you to be poor. Law two, God wants you to be hungry. Law three, God wants you to be sorrowful. And law four, God wants you to be persecuted. Or at least wants you to accept being persecuted. So how many want to become Christians now? You see, that... That doesn't work very good, does it? It seems very antithetical to everything we would think the Christian life was about. I mean, if you read some gospel tract, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, no, if you don't know Christ, you're headed for hell. And if you do know Christ, poor, hungry, sorrowful, and persecuted is waiting for you. Does that sound like a wonderful plan? Well, at first glance, no. No. And this is what makes the Beatitudes very paradoxical at first. But once you begin to study them, if you understand them correctly, they are extremely encouraging. I want you to know, you will be encouraged this morning. Now, I want to make two more preliminary observations. First is Beatitudes are things that happen to you by God's grace. You don't go out and be these things. These things happen to you. You find yourself is feeling poor. You find yourself hungry. You find yourself sorrowful, weeping. You find yourself being persecuted. But all of these things happen to you because of God's grace. The most difficult part of the Beatitudes is not understanding them, but accepting them in your life as normal, acceptable, reality, that God's grace is now working in your life and this is a blessed thing. There is one more huge observation that we need to consider. It's actually a question we need to ask. And a lot of people don't ask this. I was amazed that when you read all the commentaries, about half of them don't even get it. You think, did an unbeliever write this? The question is this. Is Jesus talking about physical things in this sermon or spiritual things? You see, when you answer that question, the whole paradox of the Beatitudes just dissolves and goes away. Once you understand what Jesus is talking about, then you can clearly understand what he's saying. Is Jesus talking about those who are poor financially? Or spiritually, is Jesus talking about those who hunger physically or spiritually? Is Jesus talking about those who mourn and weep because of personal tragedy or loss of possessions? Or is he talking about those who mourn and weep because of their sin? Is Jesus talking about suffering for being mean, combative, obnoxious, or criminal? Or is he talking about suffering for the sake of righteousness? You see, once you understand the spiritual import, because that is what Jesus is driving at, he's talking about spiritual things here, then the text is just like, oh, and it becomes extremely encouraging. And I'll show you why. Let's look at the first beatitude, verse 20. You are blessed when you are poor. Look at verse 20. And turning his gaze towards his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, we learned last week that there was a large throng of people. They're all around him, and they're hoping the Messiah is going to come back. They want to get healed. They want to hear him teach. And Jesus says, Oh, guess what? You're blessed if you're poor. Now the word blessed means happy, joyful, satisfied in God. Blessed are you, happy are you, satisfied are you who are poor. And the word poor is used of financially poor. In most places, it's talking about somebody who has just come to the end of their financial means. They can't afford anything. They can't provide for themselves. They're totally dependent and destitute on someone else to take care of them. This means, though, when you look at it spiritually, and you're talking about spiritual poverty, that somebody like Bill Gates, if the grace of God came upon him, could experience what Jesus is talking about here, though he be a multi-billionaire. It's not talking about financial poverty. It's talking about spiritual poverty. Even David, who was very rich, the richest man and king of Israel, wrote in Psalm 40, verse 17, Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. Well, he was a king. He had amassed huge amounts of wealth. What do you mean, needy? We know Jesus is talking about spiritual matters here. And when we compare with Matthew's account, Matthew helps us with two little words because he says, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Ah, ah. So we're not talking about finances, we're talking about spiritual bankruptcy. The word poor, which describes somebody with no power, no influence, no money, no ability to provide them for themselves in a spiritual way, we understand it as somebody who understands their destitution spiritually. They can't save themselves. They have nothing to offer God. They have no way to save themselves. They're helpless. They're hopeless. And the only thing they can do is cry out for alms from God, spiritual alms. Think about this. How many people must be reduced to spiritual poverty before being saved? How many people have to realize they have nothing to offer God, that they're spiritually dead, spiritually empty, spiritually penniless and destitute before being saved? How many people? Everyone. You cannot be a Christian if you don't come to that place. If you think, well, I'm doing pretty good, you know, like the Pharisees, you know, I'm spiritually rich. I have a spiritually rich and I'm pretty righteous. You aren't going to heaven yet. Because you have to come to a place in your life where you understand you are spiritually bankrupt and you need Jesus. And so this is what Jesus is arriving at here. He's saying, listen, if you get to the place where you realize you are spiritually destitute, you are blessed. Because I'll tell you, there are billions out there who don't realize this. And the ones who don't realize this are not going to heaven. That's why it's such a blessing. This spiritual bankruptcy is caused by God's grace, and it is what leads unworthy sinners to repentance. And so, even though you realize you're a spiritual beggar and you're absolutely destitute and poor, look at the encouragement given in the next line For yours is the kingdom of God. Isn't that great? You get to the place in your life where you realize, I have nothing to offer God. I am a sinner. I am hopeless. I am destitute. I don't have anything to give God. I, all I deserve is his wrath. I don't deserve his grace. I don't deserve his mercy. I don't even get a, deserve a chance to go to heaven. You get to that place, you cry out to God, and you know what he says? I'm giving you the kingdom of God. And notice it doesn't say shall be, it says is. That means it is presently your possession. You have rights to the very kingdom of God. That that is amazing. That should be extremely encouraging to you who have become poor. Because you know God's grace is working in your life and you know it may not be good here on this earth. But I'm telling you, I get everything in the kingdom of God. Do you know what the kingdom of God is? Matthew calls it something different. Matthew, who writes to Jews, doesn't want to use the word God very much. As a matter of fact, the kingdom of God only appears in his gospel four times, but the kingdom of God appears in Luke's gospel 34 times. You see, the Jews didn't like to utter the name of God, the, 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 uh, the formal name of God. Um, Yahweh, uh, Yahweh, the ineffable tetragrammatron, the unutterable four letter name. When they got to that and they were going through a passage and they came to that, they would either say the name or they would say Adonai. And so they didn't like to say it. And so Matthew, when he writes, he doesn't say the kingdom of God. He says the kingdom of heaven. We're talking heaven. You get to the place in your life where you're poor, where you realize you have nothing to offer God. This is so good because it means God's saving Grace is invading your life and yours is now the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. The whole thing. People, that is a blessing that you shouldn't want to escape from. Possessing the kingdom of heaven isn't a curse. The question is, does that describe you? Have you come to a place in your life where you see your overwhelming sin, your hopelessness, your inability to save yourself, your worthlessness of your your supposed good deeds before a perfectly holy God? And has that spiritual poverty driven you to Christ? And if you have, you are blessed because most people who have ever lived on the face of this world never come to that place. And they are never blessed because of it. They perish You know, there are people who live their life. They're kind of like a man who's walking down the path and there is a hungry lion after him, but he doesn't even know. All of a sudden, he's going to be ambushed and destroyed, killed. He, he never knows it. That's how most people are in the world. They don't understand their spiritual poverty. They're just walking along. They think they're fine. They think they're fine. I, I guess I'm going to go to heaven. I don't know. Well, I'm telling you, it is a blessing to know there's a lion. And it's after me. I cannot run it. I can't kill it. But there's a refuge, a fortress, a shield. And it's Christ. And I can run there and be safe. That is why you are blessed if you are poor. Secondly, you are blessed when you hunger. Look at verse 21. We encounter the second beatitude. Blessed are you who hunger now. I'll just stop there. Again, Jesus is not talking about food here. He's not talking about spiritual hunger. Matthew makes this clear. Matthew writes, blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So we're talking about spiritual appetite here, hunger here. Now think about your life. Do you ever feel like a sinner and wish that you were just a little more righteous or a lot more righteous? Do you ever grieve because you feel like sin just oozes out of your every pore and saturates your every thought? You know, reading your Bible, where does that sinful thought come from? You know, you're at church worshiping. Where does this lust come from, this passion come from? Do, do you just desire to just bring your whole life and just into submission to Christ? Wouldn't it just be great to not sin for a whole day? If that is you, don't try to escape. Rejoice. Why? Because this tells you that God's grace is working in your life. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 7? The things that I want to do, I don't do, and I do the very thing I hate. And I find this law working, waging in my members, waging war against the law of my mind. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Do you know that? If you know that, then you know that God's grace, his saving grace is working in your life and you are blessed because that is a normal response to God's grace. Every true believer is one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness and pants after it like the deer pants after the water brooks. And so if you find that pain in your life, like, oh, I just can't get righteous. I just can't get over my sin. You know, I've confessed this thing a zillion times. Yay! Because most people in the world and most people who have ever lived have never felt that. And they're going to hell. This is the consequence of God's goodness to let you know, hey, you're one of my children. Keep striving against sin. Keep hungering after righteousness. Turn to Romans 8. Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8 verse 18 and following, Paul just unloads and talks about this whole hunger thing. Now, he starts off the chapter saying, you know, chapter seven, wretched man I am. Chapter eight, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And when he gets to verse 18, he begins to express hunger, hunger for something to come. And notice what he says. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. You know, we've got God's Spirit and we're tasting a little bit of righteousness now. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Why? Because it's cursed. Verse 24, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for. do you see that he's in that section he's just talking about man i can't wait to get out of this sin cursed carcass i just can't wait to just get out of my sin and just be perfectly righteous hunger for righteousness blessed are you who hunger for righteousness and then if you turn back to luke chapter 6 and you look at verse 21 then you see the corollary you shall be satisfied That word satisfied means filled up, complete, lacking nothing. You will have God's perfect, holy, infinite righteousness given to you. And yet there will be no sin to cloud it. It will be yours in the fullest measure and you will never sin again. Isn't that great? I mean, that is really good. So, if you're hungering for righteousness, don't try to escape with entertainment. Don't try to escape with drugs or alcohol or light therapy or acupuncture. Praise God, because you are one of the select few, one of the select remnant who have ever lived who by God's grace felt that hunger. It is the consequences of his grace. Third, you are blessed when you are sorrowful. This comes basically from the hunger. Not only do you hunger for righteousness, you're bummed. You're sorrowful. Now there is literal weeping where you weep tears. Again, we aren't, we're talking about spiritual realities here. You may mourn over your sin, but it's talking about the grieving. The word is used of the sorrow one feels for the loss of a loved one. You just hurt inside. You ache inside. Why? Not because you've lost some possessions. Because you're a sinner. And you know you're a sinner. You know that God has given you everything you need for life and godliness. You know that. You know his spirit dwells in you. You know that no temptation has ever or ever will come upon you but such as is common to man. You know that God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. You know that. You know you never have to serve sin again and God has given you everything you need right now in this life to never sin again. And what do you do? What do I do? We sin again. We sin against the one who loved us so much he died in the cross for us. We sin against the one who put himself on that cross and suffered God's wrath in our place and we sin against him again. We know it grieves the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and we sin again. And does that grieve you? Well, it should. If you're a believer, you groan, you mourn, you weep within. And if that's you, you are so blessed. Because most people don't know that. Most people are not grieved over their sin. And so if you are grieved over your sin, if you're mourning because of your sin, that is an indication that God's saving grace is right now at this present moment working in you. Do you remember what happened to David when he committed adultery and then he committed murder and all those things? He tried to cover up and then he wrote Psalm 51 and he said, For I know my transgression is ever." Before you. He says, My sin is ever before you. He says, It's against you, God, and against you alone that I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I mean, he knew it. He knew his transgression was there and it was always before him, and it grieved him. That is so great. It is so great because that shows you God's grace is working, and that's one of the great indicators that you are saved when you're striving against sin, when you're grieved over your sin. You know, you're tempted by something. You think, I'm going to do this and I'm going to commit some high-handed rebellion. And you do. And then afterwards you think, why did I ever do that? As soon as your flesh is temporarily satisfied, you think, I am so wicked. And why are you to be encouraged? Look at the text. You shall laugh. The exact opposite of weep. You're going to laugh. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha. Laugh like that. There you go. <laughs> Psalm 126.5 puts it this way. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. Picture this. You live your life, get old, die, or the rapture happens and you're taken up into Glory. You're sitting around with all the saints of all the ages, all the unworthy, wretched sinners who were saved by grace, all those who realized that they were spiritually bankrupt in poverty, all those who hungered and thirsted for righteousness, who are now made perfect, blameless, with great joy in the presence of God. And you're dealing with all these people, and all these people are sitting around laughing. Man, we're here! Ha 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 We made it! And for all eternity, you just have this joy and this happiness laughing, laughing for all eternity because of God's goodness towards you. That doesn't sound like a curse, does it? Well, blessed are you who mourn. You're going to laugh. You will laugh for a long time. I like what the song says. When we've been there a 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise and laugh than when we first begun. That's the Jack Hughes modified version. Yeah, you're going to laugh. You're going to laugh. Fourth, you are blessed when you are persecuted. This beatitude is probably the most incomprehensible and difficult one for those who profess to know Christ. Are you sure we're blessed when we're persecuted? If you've lived in America all your life, you've had a pretty easy Christianity. And even though America is becoming more anti-God and anti-Christ all the time, yet Christianity is part of our heritage and is still widely acceptable and we have to suffer very little for Christ here. I'm sure most of us in this room have never had loved ones martyred for Christ or been thrown into prison for their faith or beat up because they shared the gospel. In fact, most churches and professing Christians get upset if they are persecuted for their faith. They hire a lawyer to get back at those people who persecuted them for being righteous. We do everything we can to avoid suffering for Christ. We go to such great lengths to make sure we don't suffer for Christ that we just become the spiritual chameleons. We put on our worldly cloaking device so we can just blend in with the world. I mean, we want anybody to know we're a Christian. We can be next to co-workers for three or four or five or 10 years who never know we're even a Christian. And the question is, are you? You know why this is wrong? Well, one of the reasons why it's wrong is because of what verse 22 says. Look there. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn you. Your name is evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Here Jesus gives a single beatitude, but he illustrates it in four different ways. Matthew sums up this single beatitude as blessed are you who are persecuted. This beatitude, Jesus or Luke describes here in Jesus' words with four different illustrations. And these illustrations are all ways you might be persecuted as a believer, someone who has God's grace working in you. Luke adds, though, for the sake of the Son of Man. Matthew adds, for righteousness' sake. You have to keep that in mind. Jesus isn't saying, well, if you suffer for any reason, for being a criminal, for being obnoxious, rude, belligerent, you know, combative, that you can just praise God. You know, I've been wicked and suffered for it. He's not saying that he's saying, no, if it's for being righteous, if it's for, for Christ's sake, that is living for Christ's sake and you suffer, don't get anxious. Don't get stressed out. Don't try and numb your reality with entertainment or drugs. Praise God. Now look at those words, hate, ostracize, insult, and scorn. Hate means to be hated, detested, and loathed. It describes somebody who's just so angry towards you that they just want to be hostile and hurt you. Blessed are you when people feel that way towards you because you're living for Christ. Look at the word ostracized. It means to be excluded, left out, ignored, rejected, set aside, not included. You know, you don't get the job promotion because they know you're a Christian. You don't get invited out to lunch with the other women because they know you're a Christian. You know, you don't get it on the team because they know you're a Christian. You get left out. You get ostracized. Blessed are you. Praise God. This is such a good thing. Look at the word insult. It means to be insulted, reproached, scolded, or reviled. You religious freak, you get out of here. You Christians are so stupid, you're so hypocritical, trying to cram your religion down other people's throats. I don't need that Jesus crutch. Blessed are you if you've been insulted for Christ's sake. And the final word, ekbalo, ek meaning out, balo to cast, to be an outcast, rejected, driven out, sent out, or scorned. You're excluded. You're fired. You're rejected. I don't want to be your friend anymore. Get out of my life. You're too freaky. You're too hyped up about this religion thing. I mean, you're extreme. If you want to have your religion, fine, but I don't need to have your religion. And yet the scriptures address this over and over again. I'm going to read some verses right now. And as I read these verses, I want you to think about your life. I want you to think about your life and how you respond when people persecute you for the sake of righteousness, if it ever happens. If it doesn't, something bigger's wrong. Luke 12:49 through 53 I can't wait to get to this passage. I have come to cast fire on the earth. And how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished speaking of his death. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace in the earth? Ha, I tell you no. But rather division. Jesus came to cause division. Keep that in your mind. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son. Son against father. Mother against daughter. Daughter against mother. mother Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. And daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Did you get the picture here? When you become a Christian and you start living for Christ and your righteousness starts oozing out of your life, the righteousness that God gives you through faith in Christ, you are going to cause division. This is a great thing. Because it shows you're saved and you're living a righteous life. It is the litmus test of godliness in the world. You know what happens when you get some vinegar and you get some baking soda and you pour them together? Well, go try it. There is a reaction. Lots of foam. Well, I'm telling you, if you think you're baking soda... And you're dumped into the vinegar of the world and nothing happens. You're not baking soda. Jesus is saying here, listen, I came to cause division because I am going to create godliness in people. And when they go out into the world, the world will hate them. And it will be the closest relationships of father and son. And I know a lot of you are experiencing this right now. So man, Be encouraged. Be encouraged, don't be all woe that, oh, my brother, or, oh, my sister, or, oh, my mom, or oh, my dad, or oh, my coworker, or oh, my best friend, and, you know, they won't talk to me anymore because, you know, I witnessed to them. Praise God. Jesus said in John fifteen eighteen through 20, these words, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Point being, listen, if you're in the world and the world likes you, something's wrong. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they keep my word, they will keep yours also. Later on in John 16 verse 2, he says, they will make you outcast from the synagogues, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he is offering service to God. Well, God, I helped you out and killed that one. Verse 33, he says, these things I have spoken to you that in me, you may have peace. Notice not in the world, but in Christ in the world, you may have peace in the world. You have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Jesus says, okay, let me just say it flat out here. I'm making you outcasts. This is your job assignment. You're going to be foreigners and outcasts. You're going to be rejected. You're going to be persecuted. But through faith in me, you're going to have peace. And I'm telling you this beforehand so you don't freak out when it happens. And so what happens when we're persecuted? What do you do? Freak out. Get anxious, stressed out. You know, I just don't know why they come into my office. My family rejected me. Why? Well, I shared the gospel, you know, at Thanksgiving dinner. Well, praise God. Yeah, but now they won't even talk to me. Oh, praise God. They look at me like, what? Acts fourteen twenty two. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Do you know what comes right before that text? No, I didn't think so. Right before that text, Paul goes into Lystra and starts preaching the gospel. They get mad at him and they stone him. For dead, they might have actually killed him. They take his carcass outside the city and they dump it, and for the buzzards to eat. And one of two things either happened: either God raised him from the dead, or he was just mostly dead, as Miracle Max would say. <laughs> and God heals him, and then what does he do? He runs away to the city that just stoned him. And he keeps preaching the gospel. And then he says, you know, and who knows where he sat all the lumps and bumps and purple knots in his head. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Praise God. Aren't you glad he did that? I am. Second Timothy 3.12. Paul gives us this promise. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. How many? All. What does that mean? Listen. You aren't persecuted, you aren't, figure it out. It's a very simple syllogism. James, in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, writing to Christians who are being persecuted for their faith, gives us this introduction. Now, as I read this, I want you to again think about, now, does this describe me when people persecute me when I do what's right? Consider it all joy, my brethren, all joy. Now, think of the all joy moments of your life. You know, when you get married or when you see your child born, just, you know, the joy is like, Oh, praise God. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. What? Knowing that the testing of your faith, that is what's causing the trials, produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, Peter is writing to those who are suffering. It's the theme of his book says, for what credit is there if you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Then later on in, in chapter 3, verse 14 of 1 Peter, but even, if, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. He's just stating what Jesus said. And do not fear their intimidation. What happens when people start persecuting? We get what? Intimidated. And do not be troubled. And what do we do when people start persecuting us for righteousness? We get troubled. He says, don't do it. And then later on in chapter 4, verses 12 through 14, he says, beloved, do not be surprised. And I love this little adjective, the fiery ordeal. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. No, it's strange to not have it happen to you. If you're like Christ and you're in the world that hates Christ, then you should experience the fiery ordeal to one degree or another. He goes on, but to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, notice the worse the trials get, the degree to which you suffer for Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled by the name of Christ, you are blessed. He says it again because of the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. God's grace is working in you. The world doesn't like that. That means you're living for Christ and your righteousness is being an influence and it's doing good in the world. So rejoice when you're persecuted. John says it this way. Do not marvel brethren if the world hates you. First John 3, 13. That's pretty easy. Don't marvel. And what happens? As soon as we're persecuted, we start marveling. And why are you blessed? Look at verse 23 of Luke 6. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward in heaven is... Great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way... Their fathers used to treat the prophets. Now, just like he gives four examples of persecution, he gives four encouragements here. The first is, be glad in that day. Do not wait. Do not fret. Do not freak out. Because things are happening to you that are painful and you're being persecuted. Be glad in that day, like the apostles after they were preaching the gospel, and they were taken captive and beat up and whipped and flogged, and then they left rejoicing because they had been considered worthy to suffer for Christ. Then he says, not only be glad in that day, then he says, leap for joy. Just skip around. When you're persecuted, it's yeah! Does that describe you? Hardly. I always remember this verse after I complain. Be glad in that day. Leap for joy. Third thing, behold, your reward in heaven is great. I don't care how much you suffer here on earth. You have a greater reward in heaven. We read it in Romans 8, 18. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is. You're going to have eternal glory. You have the whole kingdom of heaven. You have Christ, perfect righteousness. What are you doing? Complaining. It's yours. You have it. Third and finally, or fourth and finally, be encouraged by reminding yourself you're in good company. You know what kind of people get persecuted? Elijah, Elijah, Moses, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the godless or the godliest men who have ever lived, the godliest women who have ever lived have been persecuted the most. The more godly, the more they're persecuted. John the Baptist off of his head. Jesus nailed to the cross. The point is this, when you look at these beatitudes, they aren't the bummer These are indications that God's grace is working in your life to first bring you to salvation and then to create a hunger, a sensitivity to sin and righteousness, which the world repels and attacks and scorns and insults and hates. And so as you see these things in your life, praise God because you're one of the lucky few, the lucky few who will ever live who are blessed by God's grace in this way. So you leave here this morning and these beatitudes are yours, you need to be thanking God because not everybody understands their poverty Not everybody hungers for righteousness. Not everybody weeps over their sin and not everybody is worthy to have God's grace make them righteous so that the world hates them. This is a privilege and we need to thank God for it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. Oh, what a blessing it is to read about how we can see your grace manifested in our life through the Beatitudes. And, Father, if there's a person here who realizes they've never seen their poverty, they've never hungered and thirsted after righteousness or wept over their sin, or, Father, even been persecuted for the faith, and they're realizing the reason they haven't is because your grace isn't now working in their life and they aren't saved. I just pray that they would cry out to you in their heart, that they would ask for forgiveness, that they would repent of their sins and ask you to change them, infuse them with your saving grace that they might be able to experience the beatitudes which remind us constantly that we are your children, that the kingdom of heaven is ours, that great is our reward, that we shall be laughing soon with the saints of all the ages. Father, help us to keep these things in mind as we live in a troubled world. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.